Would you open God's precious holy word to 2 Samuel 23? If you don't know what a charter is, I'm going to teach that to you tonight. <laughs> it's a misspelled word and it's my fault. The character called David. There's one more chapter after this. We've been in 1st and 2nd Samuel for a long time. I hope you've learned a lot about David. Now remember these last three or four chapters <clears throat> are just historical addendum. It's not this part, these last three chapters or so are not in chronological order like we've, what we've been following. We've also departed, you may recall, we've been paralleling the study of 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. And 2 Samuel picked up on a portion of David's life that 1 Chronicles did not include. And now after next week, I guess, the 24th chapter is the last one. Um, we'll go back and finish out 1 Chronicles because it has, in its closing chapters, it has... Uh, parts of David's life that, uh, that Samuel didn't have, Second Samuel. So let's look at Second Samuel 23 now. And it's just giving us an overview about David, who he is, uh, and certain things about his life. He, of course, we have, we have observed for, what, months in our study here, the uniqueness of David, the hand of God that was, was on him and all that God had done for him and through him. This takes us back a little bit before some of the stuff that we just recently studied here. The first thing to note is that David is called the inspired singer by rabbinical scholars, those, those of, the, of Judaism. And we see this in the first seven verses, but it also alludes to leadership, the privileges of leadership. David was never unaware of how leadership was a was a privileged thing and it's also something that he could not lead the people alone. First of all, he had to have the Spirit of God. The Bible teaches us that the Spirit of God came on him when he was anointed by Samuel and then, and then of course, he grew in that spirit as he developed. So let's begin here in verse one. And these are the last words of David. Now what that means is this is a psalm recorded only here. We don't have this just like this in another psalm. So the last words of David, it doesn't mean that he's about to die here because his death doesn't come until an, another book. It's not recorded here in 2 Samuel. But it is the last inspired words of David. The saying of David, the son of Jesse, and the saying of, of the man raised on high, the anointed of uh, the God of Jacob, 
and the sweet singer of Israel. The spirit of Yahweh spoke in me and his word was upon my tongue. Okay. To note, to note the privileges that uh, David had in his leadership is to take to heart. One of the things to take to heart is what he says right here in uh, verse two, the spirit of Yahweh spoke in me. His word, his word was upon my tongue. David is one of the authors of scripture. The Holy Scriptures are given to us by inspired men called by God, inspired by God, about 44 of them over a period of 1600 years. In David's case, God would inspire him to write his word in, in a cave, alone, hiding in rocks and fields, in a castle in his great house that he built uh, in Jerusalem on the battlefield. And yet the same word was always there. You and I have carefully looked at the way David was inspired to write the Psalms. A Psalm of David is both a prayer that would become a song. You may recall, and this is why when we read those prayers and they're, it's, it's amazing to think that this is God's word in David's heart. David, in most of those Psalms, in our study of the Psalms, we've, we have seen this. He would start out filled with doubt. And the way my daddy would have said it was he, he got sassy with God in, in the early part of a psalm. He would doubt. He would question, what the, what, what's going on here? You know. Then, as the psalm, and the psalm may not be, but eight verses, whatever, some of them more than that, of course. But after his emotional address in opening his prayer, his heart would settle and he would begin to acknowledge the presence of God. And it's practically this way in all of his Psalms. They, all of them that are really what I would call an emergency prayer. And by the time he gets to the last couple or three verses of the Psalm, he's praising God. Now, he could have been in a cave surrounded by enemies um, who were indeed dedicated to the destruction of David, his, his, uh, to destroy his life, to just eradicate him from history. Without, without being anywhere equal to those who are around him, if not for the hand of God, he would not have escaped. In a seemingly hopeless setting, in a seemingly hopeless situation, David had but one thing to do, and that was to pray. The interesting thing here is that those psalms that we have, those prayers, 
came to him from God. In other words, God inspired David to question him. It's interesting. Uh, you know, what are you, what's happening? Where are you, God? You seem to be so far away. Some of them would start out like that. He would settle in as he prayed and more or less feel the arms of God around him, I guess, and he would acknowledge the presence of God after his initial introductory remarks in his prayer. He'd begin to settle down and then he would engage in worship by the end of the psalm. Now, here is why I say all of those prayers came from God through David. God knows our hearts and he knows how emotional we are. He knows, the, he knows how our emotions can go wild within us when we are faced with dire situations. I don't think, maybe some of us here have. I have to think about this. Maybe at some point in time, I had somebody looking for me to kill me. I don't remember it. I don't think about it. I don't know that I did. But I sure did run from mama and daddy a few times. Now, and you learn how to pray, you know, when you're scared. Same thing with David. God, and it shows God's understanding of the human heart of the human situation, God was, God noted that David was a man after his heart, after the heart, in pursuit of the heart of God. And in that pursuit, many times he was confused. And he actually asked a question of God. He questioned God. My daddy was a preacher, he was a very strong preacher. And uh, he he would, he, would, he would teach me, you don't, ever, you don't ever question God. You, know, you don't ever ask. But David did sometimes. Almost as if as God inspired the prayer, he invited the question. Because of course, God has the answer. And he's, we can go to him. James writes, we can go to God without reproach. We keep going back to God and going back to God sometimes with the same stuff and we go back to God and back to God and James says, it's okay. God doesn't dread seeing you coming. There's no reproach with God when you go to God. David experienced that in his life. So when we look back now, he says, these are the last words. This is the last thing. In other words, what David is saying is I'm closing out here. I'm inspired to say, there will be no more recorded scriptures from the lips of David. Last words, last inspired words. The spirit of Yahweh, whenever the sweet singer of Israel would sing, the anointed one of the God of Jacob, he knew when the spirit of Yahweh spoke in him, when his word was upon when the word of God was upon his tongue. The privileges of leadership, the responsibilities of leadership. And when I say privileges, I'm speaking of how the spirit of God anointed him, gave him the prayer that he knew David needed to ask. And in the course of the prayer would give David the comfort and the answer to his prayer. 
for which David, in which David would worship, for which David would sing. The God of Israel said, concerning me spoke the rock of Israel. A ruler over men shall be the righteous man, he that rules in the fear of Elohim, of God, the righteous man. Now we're not good because we are of a fallen race. And in the present state in which we live, sin is in our nature. But the one to whom God calls to himself, that one is declared to be righteous. If you go back to Zechariah, for example, the, the priest, as, as Zechariah's prophecy goes, he, you know, he had what, eight visions? He had eight different visions and he saw the high priest come and he was in a filthy robe. And God said from heaven, take that filthy robe off of him. He spoke to his angel, take that filthy robe off of him and put a clean white robe on him. It was still the same man, but God cleaned him up. God declared that he would see this priest, this high priest as clean and pure in his sight. This is how God declares us to be righteous. It is called the impugned righteousness of God. David understood that. You and I have just been through several chapters in 2 Samuel in which we have seen David's sin with Bathsheba and the prophet affirming that the consequences of that sin would go deep into his family, would affect his family. And we saw the effects of it. We saw his son kill one of his other sons. Well, a son raped his sister, a daughter of David, and then that son was killed by another son. And then that son would rebel against his father and almost, it would seem, succeed in taking the throne from, from David. It was horrible, a horrible string of consequences that had been declared by the prophet from God. And he said, you know, God has forgiven you of your sin, but but you have given cause to the enemies of God to rejoice and blaspheme his name. So David in that sense was, was only righteous because God had declared him to be righteous. Now in his righteousness, in the righteousness that God had impugned to him, he had to have been a man who was conscious of personal sin. In that sense, then he was broken at the words of the prophet. I've said this before, Saul in his sin of chasing after a witch, you know, he would chase after a witch. He didn't go after God to ask God to help him. He went for a witch to help him. David was on the other end of that. David, when he was caught in his sin and declared to be sinful, was broken before God. And of course, the 51st Psalm and, and, and what David, the, the, the broken heart of a sinful man and how he came before God and he, he of course found the forgiveness of God. Well, all of that has to do with the fact that he had God consciousness. If you have God consciousness, you have self-awareness and if you have self-awareness, you don't think so highly of yourself. David, if you watch 
And you, well, you and I have seen it. We've been studying it for months. David never exalted himself. You ever thought about that? He never bragged on himself. He refused to assume the position of superiority over Saul, even in a time when he could have killed Saul. And he didn't take the opportunity. Even when his men were disappointed in him for not taking the opportunity because David would not exalt himself. He knew that it was all of God and that God would do it the way God wanted to do it. So in this, in this sense, being aware of God and the one who had imputed righteousness to him, he then, he then knew that there was nothing good about himself, that God did it all. So he ruled in fear of God, of Elohim, the great God of creation. And as the light of the morning when the sun shines, a morning without clouds, more than the light that follows the rain that falls upon the grass of the earth. For my house is not so with El. Now, this is a messianic verse looking forward to Messiah. For an everlasting covenant has he made with me. This never left the mind of David and the heart of David. That back, back much earlier in our study of Samuel, God established a covenant with David, the Davidic covenant. The son of David would sit on the throne of David and he would rule the everlasting kingdom. David never lost sight of the everlasting covenant that God made with him. And that whole covenant was God established and therefore it was God's responsibility and God assumed that responsibility to make sure that this covenant was carried through. So even though David would stumble terribly, God had people in place to bring him back around to where he needed to be. So he never lost sight of the fact that God had made a covenant with him fully set forth and heeded for all my salvation and all the desires before him for he will not sprout forth another on the throne. He's looking forward to the, you know, the, the, the root and the shoot of, of, uh, of, of Jesse, the son of Jesse. David, uh, David knows in his heart that someday his descendant will be his Christ. Jesus alluded to that in the Gospels, you know. How is it he asked the question that David would say, the Lord said to my Lord. David knew that someday the son of David would be the Christ of God. He, he knew this and it's clear especially in his Psalms, in the Messianic Psalms uh, that he writes. So he knows then that all of his salvation and the desire is before the Christ. On that day, on that occasion when the Ark of the Covenant was being moved, David referred to it as he referred to the Christ, of course, typified by the Ark of the Covenant. He referred to the Christ as uh, the one whose name is the name. He didn't know what the name of the Christ would be. 
There were various ways that the patriarchs and the prophets and even King David would have a name for him. Uh, Shiloh was Jacob's name for him. And, and so they, they knew that he was, they just didn't know his name, uh, what would be his name. Well, this is, this is David's uh, profession of his knowledge of the coming of the one who is his desire and the one who brings his salvation. But the wicked are all as thorns thrust away for they cannot be taken in hand. But if a man touch them, he should be armed with iron and the staff of a spear and with fire, they shall be utterly burned in their place. So here's the, David would see the separation of the righteous and the wicked and the one who would separate them is the one who would sit on his throne someday, uh, the Christ of God. David not only was an inspired singer, but he was a gifted leader. But he had to depend on others. God surrounded him with people he needed in order for David to accomplish what God had purposed for David to accomplish. And here we have that recorded here. David was given men by God who were his mighty men. They made his army seem like a much bigger army than it was. David was a most wanted man in the days of Saul. He was a most wanted man in the days of the Philistines who had come against him. But no one could ever approach David because God had raised up mighty men to surround him. And God, the Spirit of God, gave them the personal resources they needed to be mighty warriors in their day. Now, we've already studied this a little bit earlier, but it goes into a little more detail here. And it's divided into the numbers of them. The first three of the mighty men are here. These are the names of the mighty men who served David. He who sat in the assembly of the wise, the chief of the threesome, he was Adeno, the Etzenite, who lifted his spear against 800 and slain them at one and slew them at one time. Now how, that, how he did that, I don't know. If the spirit of God is with you and the spirit of God is with your arm and your spear, I guess it doesn't really matter, but Maybe he ran them off of a cliff. I don't know. But 800, this guy, the Bible says, with his spear, this one guy went up against 800 and killed him. After him came Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the son of an Ahohite, who was among the three mighty men that were with David when they risked their lives against the Philistines that were gathered there to do battle while the men of Israel had departed. He rose up and smote uh, the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand cleaved to the sword and Yahweh performed a great victory that day. And when the people returned after him, it was only to strip the slain. And after him came Shema, the son of Agai, the mountaineer. Now the Philistines were gathered together in a troop and there was a plot of ground full of lentils. 
And the people had fled from the Philistines, but he stationed himself in the midst of the plot and he defended it. He slew the Philistines and Yahweh performed a great victory. It's beautiful how in the whole story of David, Yahweh has always given the credit for the victory. Now, here's a guy that did a great thing, but if it hadn't been for Yahweh, he couldn't have done anything by the spirit of Yahweh. So a lot of things, when you, when you put all this together in the Old Testament, you will see that Yahweh, first of all, can weaken, he can weaken the determination of the enemy. He can give them a spirit of cowardice so that just a few Israelites could could slash away at hundreds and hundreds of the enemy because he had taken away their spirit to do any fighting and they were just cowards. You remember 318 trained servants with Abram, Abraham, went to do battle against Keteleomer and the kings, the other kings, four kings against Abram. Just a, Abraham was just a, he was, just, you know, he had a household, it was a big household and they were all shepherds but they were trained shepherds. They were trained. It's an interesting, interesting Hebrew word that refers to the fact that evidently these were the guys whom Abram had made sure were trained in military arts. And they, they were his little army. But they utilized psychological warfare. They fought at night when they went after these Kings of the plains, Keterleomer and the others, and soundly defeated them and took Lot back and took all the spoils that these kings had and took a gift to Melchizedek, the, the king of righteousness, king of peace. Well, God had all of these different ways that he would, he would fill people with his spirit, even to the point of making the enemy even see ghosts or whatever and scare them and would do whatever it took to make sure the war had been won. And here's a guy, we've talked about this before, how the Philistines were just mean. The Israelites, were they were agrarian people. They, they grew crops and tended to flocks. They weren't the warrior caste like the Philistines were. The Philistines had weapons of iron. The Israelites didn't have anything like that. But this one guy, the Israelites would grow the crops and they would get it right up to time. They would gather the crops into the barn. And after everything was in and the weather was about to set in where the people had to live off of what they had gathered for the next season, then the Philistine army would show up and steal all their stuff. Any of the Israelites that came against them, they would kill them with their iron weapons. Well, here's a guy that said, no, you're not going to do that. This, this guy, this mighty man of David, he stationed himself in the midst of the plot where they had grown their crops and he defended it and he slew the Philistines and Yahweh performed a great victory. Now the second three of David's mighty men. Now the point here is that God, the Bible gives us their names or gives us what they did. 
And God raised them up and placed them. He gave them the personal resources within their souls and hearts that they needed. And he, in his divine and sovereign way, placed them where they needed to be so that the covenant would continue with David and that no one could harm David. And that David's army, though this is in the days of Saul, though David's army was small, just a few hundred men, Saul's army of thousands couldn't do anything with them. So these mighty men, the point being, these people who surround us when we're in a position of leadership, if we are after the heart of God, if we're in pursuit of God, then God has a way of surrounding us with the right people because we can't do everything. And David couldn't do everything. Three of the 30 chiefs went down and they came in the harvest time to David to the cave of Adullam. And the troop of the Philistines were encamped in the valley of Rephim. And David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David desired and he said, oh, if one would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Now, you know, that's kind of David's hometown, right? That's kind of where David was from. I'm really thirsty and I love the water that comes out of that well at Bethlehem. And the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water out of the well of Bethlehem. It was by the gate and they carried it and brought it back to David, but he did not care to drink it and he poured it out before Yahweh. And he said, be it far from me, Yahweh, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men that went in jeopardy of their lives? And he wouldn't drink it. These deeds performed uh, these deeds performed the, the three mighty men. This second group of three. They took on the whole Philistine army just so they could get a bucket of water, a skin of water, brought it back to David and all of his men who were thirsty would have had to have watched him drink the water. That's why I said earlier, he never exalted himself. He never put himself above anybody else and that's what made him such a great leader. One of the things that made him such a great leader. And he poured it out as a drink offering, what he had seen the priests do in the, in the, the tabernacle that they had set up in that day. He just poured it out as a drink offering. You guys, you guys risked your lives, your blood for this water. How can, I, how can I drink this and declare to everybody that you should have done this and that your three lives were worth my drink of water? I can't do it. He would pour it out then as a, as a drink offering to Yahweh. Then there were two special mighty men, Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the three, and he roused his sword against 300 slain at one time, and he had acquired a name among the three. I mean, these guys are unbelievable, right? Of the three, he was most honored, and he was their captain. But to the first three, he did not attain. He, they were good, but they weren't as good as the ones we just talked about. And Benayahu, the son of Jehoiada, the son of, a valiant man, the son of a valiant man, great in deeds of Kabzael, he smote the two mighty men of Moab. And he went down and smote the lion inside a pit on a snowy day. A lion that had troubled the people and they had, they had uh, carved out a, a pit to catch him, <laughs> but you know, it's kind of like this. Okay, we caught the big nasty lion. Now what do we do, right? 
He's, he's eventually going to scratch his way out of there. Well, this guy just jumped down there with him, killed him on a snowy day. Now, he slew an Egyptian, a man of striking appearance, and in the Egyptian's hand was a spear, and he went down to him with only a staff. And he grabbed the spear from the hand of the Egyptian and slew him with his own spear. You just got to love stories like that. Uh, you just have to. These deeds performed Benayahu, the son of Jehoiada, and he had acquired a name among the three mighty men. Of the 30, he was the most honored, but to the first three, he never did attain, and David placed him over his following. So this inner circle of the, of the 39, this inner circle were just really terrific. I mean, they were like, superheroes. And then finally, the remaining 30. And we'll just read their names here. Asahel, the brother of Job, was among the 30. Elchanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. Uh, Shammah, the Haradite. Uh, Elicha, the son of the Haradite. Helez, the Paltite. Era, the son of Ikesh, the Tekite. Abiezer, the Anatite. Mabunai, the Hushatite. Zalman, the Ahotite, Ahochite, I'll get it right in a minute. Maharei, the Nitophotite. Caleb, the son of Baana. Huh. You put an E in between those two A's, he'd be the son of Banana. Caleb, but it's not there, so it's Caleb, the son of Baana, the Nitophotite. Ittai, the son of Rebai, of Gibeah, of the children of Benjamin. Benaiahu, the, the Piratonite. Chedai, of Nahale Noesh. Abelbon, the Arbutite. Azmavit, the Barchumite. Eliachba, the Sha'albanite, of the sons of Jashan. Jonathan, I hope you're taking notes. There will be a test at the end of this class. Shema the Harite, Achem, the son of Sharar, the Ararite, Eliphalet, the son of Abhasbai, the son of Maachatite, Eliam, the son of Ahitophel, the Gilonite, the Gilonite, Hezri, the Carmelite, Paarai, the Arbite, Egal, why can't they all be like Egal? Egal, the son of Ndatan of Zobah, Bani the Gadite, Zelek the Ammonite, Nachri the Beiratite, the armor bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Ira the Ithrite, Gareb and Ithrite, Uriah the Hittite, we remember him, the Hittite? 37 in all. That guy was Bathsheba's husband. He was a, he was a mighty, um, one of the mighty men of David. The important thing here is that God provided David what he needed because God had established a covenant with David. He gave these mighty men the skills they needed. You remember how David said, you taught, he said to the Lord, you taught my hands how to battle. And my fingers how to go to war and you taught my feet how to run. David knew that all of his victories came from Yahweh. 
And he also, it's acknowledged here that all of his great warriors who performed unbelievable things on the battlefield were gifts from Yahweh. To David, David within himself because of the covenant of all of the men in the world, David carried the promise of the Christ. And that beautiful story of the promise of the seed of woman continues unbroken all the way to the manger and his virgin mother who became the lonely sublime figure on the cross who died for us. These guys have a part of that. Can you see that? They were there. They were raised up. Their names are in the Bible and their names are etched in eternity because God called them to be servants and equipped them to do what God would have them to do. Well, I'm going to stop there and we'll, God willing, we'll pick up there next time and we'll have our deacon prayer time.